0: revival let's hit that top actually no let's do that bottom quote edward griffith Um, if you don't have a little extra handout just try to be near someone who does because you will want that as well all right here's that quote from edward griffin let's start with this the appearance was as if A collection of waters, long suspended over the town, had fallen all at once and deluged the whole place. Get some seats up here, guys. For several weeks, the people would stay at the close of every evening service to hear some new exhortation, and it seemed impossible to persuade them to depart, until those on whose lips they hung had retired. That's... Edward Griffin, who's a pastor in, New, in Newark, New Jersey, in 1807. He wrote those words about his own church service. I want to just give you a little bit of context here because it makes that quote maybe stand out a little more. In 1807, people would go to church. They would walk to church. Can you imagine that? I don't know. I can barely drive to church most Sundays. These people would walk to church. And they would go in the morning. They would have a break in the afternoon. And they would come back at night. So they'd be basically at church all day. So here's what he's saying. After being at church all day for like four or five hours in the day, the people in the congregation could not get enough of God's word. They hung on, the, uh, on the, every word that was spoken by the pastors, by the teachers of the Bible. They could not get enough. Can you imagine that? They literally tired out their pastors longing to hear more from God's word. This is a description of what a true revival is. I don't know about you, but quotes like this energize and encourage me to think about a time when people—you literally couldn't get, put put enough, build a big enough room to house the people who wanted to hear about God. And I hope that we're encouraged together as we look at at revival. I'm going to walk you through that outline fairly simply. Talk about the uh, right understanding of revival, some of the preconditions for revival, and the effects of revival. Let's pray together. As we start our time, God, I do thank you for each one here. God, I'm so thankful for a full room of college students who want to hear about revival. God, I pray for you to bring revival on our campuses. God, I I beg you to help the men and women in this room uh, to have a greater sense of your presence when your word is preached. I pray that you would help us to rededicate ourselves to the ordinary means of teaching the Bible, of investing in others, and of prayer. And I pray, God, that you would use these things, these very ordinary things that you call us to, in a supernaturally powerful way on our campuses. God, I pray for special things to happen on the on the campuses that are here this week, at, at Bloomsburg, and Bucknell, and Kutztown, and Albright, and Alvernia, uh, and so many other campuses I'm sure I forgot to mention. God, would you do a special work on each of our campuses for the glory of Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. It's also printed for you on the packet, page
1: 48.
0: Josh is going to read that for me, and we're going to do a little bit of discussion together. Sound good? So before Josh reads that, let me give you a little bit of context. Nehemiah is written to the exiles who have returned from exile. All right, you're like, what the heck is he talking about? Here's what I mean. Israel, the nation that God made to be his people, turned its back on God. That's the history in the Old Testament if you read it. They turned their back on God, they turned to idols, they worshiped false gods, and they were, um, their city was destroyed, their nation was destroyed by Babylon, and after 70 years, the, the people were taken for 70 years, rather, to Babylon to live, and after 70 years, they returned back to Jerusalem. Does that make sense? So they were exiles in Babylon, they've returned back to their country, and although they've returned back to their country physically, they haven't really returned spiritually. Does that make sense? So they're back in the right place. They're back where God seemed to, to want his people to be in his promised land, yet it doesn't feel right. All right, So there's kind of a revival that breaks out here, and we're going to talk about how that's described. Josh, Nehemiah 8.
2: And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Melchah, Hashem, Hashpadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Aku, Shebatai, Hodiah, Mesaiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josebed, Hannah, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law.
0: Thanks, Josh. What do you guys get? How is revival? There's a revival that happens here. How is it described? What happens?
1: It's emotional.
0: There's emotions and feelings. It's awkward to talk about emotions, right? <laughs> what emotions do we see in this text? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Weeping. Weeping. What else? Rejoicing. Rejoicing. <clears throat> what else? Uh,
1: excitement.
0: Excitement. <coughs> yeah. That's...
3: Understanding.
0: There's understanding, yeah. We, it's just helpful for us to maybe reflect for a moment. In this text, in a moment of revival, there is a range of emotional responses.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We'll get more into that in a minute, but at least we see this very clearly, that having an emotional response is not a bad thing. In fact, when a revival comes, it does seem like a variety of emotions occur. Deep conviction of sin happens here, right?
1: Mm.
0: Yeah. What else happens here? So there's a variety of emotional responses. What else?
4: Uh, there's a clear reading and exposition of the law.
0: Yeah, where do we see that? What verse is that in?
4: Um, so we see in the beginning a few verses that they read the book of the law, but verse 8 stood out to me in particular. They read from the book the law of God clearly and they yeah. gave a sense that the people understood the reading. Do you
0: guys see what Connor just said? It's really good. So what's key to this moment of revival? People are hearing. I'm not just hearing actually understanding the Word of God. Great, what else? Anything else about the people here?
2: Verse 4, Ezra stood on a wooden platform that they made for this purpose. Clearly, someone in lead is doing these expository words.
0: Right. They're, yeah, there's leaders here who are speaking. Great.
3: Um, they're standing to hear the word read, but then they're also bowing down in worship to the Lord. So they're like, yeah. giving reverence to the Lord in the way that they're, they're holding
0: their bodies. Do you hear what Melody's saying? So let's, we, could, we could draw this out a little bit more and say, in a revival, something special happens. And one of the special things that happens is people are responding to the word differently. Look at what the text says. Um, verse 3. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. There is a special attentiveness to God's word. They listened in a way they hadn't been listening before. It's helpful here. Maybe we could put at least two of these things together. One of the things we see in this text is that a revival occurs only and on the strength of and by the power of the word of God as it is clearly proclaimed from leaders to people, but particularly it has to be proclaimed clearly, appreciate what Connor was emphasizing, so that people could understand. Maybe you've been in churches and services where you feel like, I don't understand what they're talking about. Anyone ever felt like that? Hopefully not at Focus, but maybe you felt like that. <laughs> I'm, I've been guilty of teaching at times. Where you're like, what the heck was he saying? I don't really know. But that's not what happens here at Revival. There's a clear proclamation of God's word. It's clear people understand it, and they sense that it's God speaking to them, and and there's an emotional response. So there's truth and emotion coupled together, not divided. So you see that happens at a revival. <laughs> one other thing I want to highlight here, just um, in light of the cultural context or the excuse me, the literary context, is that this breaks out after a period of decline. Right, Nehemiah chapter eight is really kind of at when the nation of Israel is at one of its lowest ebbs in its history. It's not a good time to be in Israel, right? Your nation is uh, overrun, has been overrun by an enemy nation. You don't have a lot of hope for the future. Spiritually, the nation's in decline, and that's when revival breaks out. This is helpful to remember. Revival breaks out, particularly after a period of decline. All right, we've looked at this from the Bible. I want to look at a couple of quotes here and get this definition real crystal clear. The first one is from a church historian, Richard Lovelace. He says this, revival, this is on the extra handout, which we ran out of copies. I'm sorry. Look on with a friend if you can. But um, revival is not a special season of religious excitement. Rather, it's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which restores the people of God to to a normal spiritual life after a period of corporate declension. So he's saying revival isn't merely just excitement or emotion, but it's a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which restores the church after it's at its lowest ebb. I don't know about you, this actually kind of encourages me in a, in a weird way. Because one of the qualifications for a revival is that, for the most part, revivals don't really break out when the church is at its best, but when the church is it looks like it's at its bleakest. That's an encouragement to me, at least as I look around at the church in America today, I don't feel like, wow, things are great. Anyone with me? I'm sorry to be, I'm not trying to be negative, I'm just being honest. I guess this is being recorded, but... Um, <laughs> Shoot. Um, But (laughs) it's an encouragement to me because that gives a little bit of hope that God might do something special in your generation and my generation. Because things do look bleak. But that is the kind of period where God pours out revival. All right, that was the Lovelace definition. The other definition, I managed to make it onto your handout. This is from a historian, another church historian, Ian Murray. Let me get someone to read that. Who's courageous enough to read that for me? That quote from Ian Murray.
3: Thus, what characterizes a revival is not the employment of unusual or special means, but rather the extraordinary degree of blessing attending the normal means of grace. There were no unusual evangelistic meetings, no special arrangements, no announcements of pending revivals. Pastors were simply continuing in the services they had conducted for many years when the great change began.
0: What stands out to you guys from that quote? The normal means of
5: grace.
0: Normal means of grace.
5: The pastors were simply continuing the services. They weren't doing anything
0: different.
5: Yeah. Yeah,
4: revival doesn't come from a, a pastor's wisdom or trying to appeal to people through entertainment. It comes through, like they said, continuing in the of yeah. grace that God has ordained for the church.
1: Yeah.
0: Revival happens after a long period of ordinary and the pastors are, are continuing to remain faithful, and God pours it out in a special way. They're doing ordinary things. They didn't schedule a revival. They didn't bring in, let's say, let's get the best speaker we possibly can and get him in front of as many young people as we can, then we'll get a revival. no. That's actually not what happens in revival. Revival comes without warning, without planning, almost as a surprise. You know, one of the things you find as you read about revival in church history, and I won't go on too far here, but just one interesting factoid is this. Most often the event that occurs before a revival, do you wanna know what it is? It's not exciting. It's the event we mostly avoid at our churches: prayer meetings. Mm. Seriously, prayer meetings. More often than not, it's a, sometimes it's a Sunday service, but often it's a prayer meeting. These ordinary, everyday prayer meetings, God seems to specially bless. All right, we've looked at two historians' definitions. We've looked at the Bible. Now, here's my thoughts on revival. I I put my definition on that special handout, which only the special people got. Sorry. And they're sharing. And they're sharing because they're special. (laughs) Revival is a special outpouring of the Spirit of God on the people of God through the ordinary means of God. That's word, prayer, and sacrament after a period of particular decline. So I want to just make a note here. Revival is not ordinary, and I'm not saying ordinary is bad, right? We actually just talked about the ordinary means being very good. Most of church history is ordinary. Revival is special. Revivals transform whole towns, whole regions, and whole communities particularly after a period of decline. All right, so what do we do with this? Let's talk just give me, you know, a few thoughts here on application. Well, for, first it's this, we need to see that it's not programs that launch revival. Hopefully you're planning for your fall semester. None of your plans will cause a revival to happen on your campus. I'm sorry. It's not charismatic leaders that lead to revival. It's not having the best staff and disciple makers in Pennsylvania. or It's not having the best leaders you've ever had. It doesn't seem like it's special, perfect leaders who do it. But God brings revival through very ordinary means. I don't know about you, but some of the times, through some of the sessions, this week, even the tracks perhaps, has it felt kind of ordinary? Maybe? Anybody? Just me? Okay, no, some... I don't mean ordinary in a bad way. Simple, right? Okay, invest in people. They've been telling me that in track one, I'm sorry, in the discipleship track. Invest in people. I know it. All right, I got to go do it. Bible study. All right, I got to lead a Bible study or try to understand the Bible better for myself. That's fairly simple, but it is these simple things that God uses in a special way. If you're going to see revival on your campus, it's going to be because there's a community of people dedicated to the ordinary means. All right, I want to talk a little bit about counterfeit for a second. Do you know that one of the most counterfeited products in America in the world really is shoes? Did you know this? I
1: believe
0: it. It's true. The I think the world's most counterfeited shoe, I'm not sure about this. I looked this up recently. It's the Air Jordans one. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it. Anyone have (laughs) it? Anyone have them on right now? Nobody does. Okay.
1: (laughs) <laughs> the,
0: the original Air Jordan 1s, they're worth as much as $100,000. Mm-hmm. But a big problem with the Air Jordan 1s and with many of these expensive shoes is widespread counterfeiting, right? Imagine if I had just a factory and I could make a whole bunch of, I don't know, cheap Air Jordan 1s and sell them to you for $100. bucks. you would be like, great, I have Air Jordan 1s and they look, they look just like the regular thing, even though they're not, right? That would have a, that, that was, would and does have an effect on the market for Air Jordans, right? if you had a lot of counterfeits. You see, counterfeits cheapen the value of the genuine. The same thing is true in revival, particularly. Counterfeit revival, or what I'm gonna call, I'm really borrowing from other historians here, but revivalism is a counterfeit to revival. Revivalism is a counterfeit to revival. During what's called the Second Great Awakening, this is a period in the 1800s where God was doing amazing things in America, um, there was this pastor leader named Charles Finney, and he got some very strange, to be honest, very bad ideas. He wrote about how you could make revivals happen through a certain, through the right use of methods. He wrote a book called "How to Have a Revival," basically revivals of religion. I put the quote again on the special handout. If the whole church as a body had gone to work years ago and continued in it as a few individuals have done, there might not now have been an impenitent sinner in the land. Here's what Finney's saying simply. He's saying, if you guys had followed my methods instead of arguing with me, we would have had revival everywhere. There wouldn't be an unrepented sinner in America. Seriously. That sounds like crazy, right? If you did these right methods, there won't be an unrepentant sinner. You know, th- there's so many problems with, with Finney here, um, but the big problem is this. He's saying if you do the right things, people automatically get saved. I mean, uh, there's just, and this is what where he developed a number of different methods and I, I want to be careful here because I'm not trying to call out these methods, just to be clear. I'm not trying to call out anything, but These methods, he said, if you do these, these are kind of the secret. He said methods like the altar call or protracted, that means prolongated meetings, or this thing called the anxious bench. I bet you don't know what that is. They would have a special bench. Maybe I should have done it this afternoon. You put it up front for the unrepentant sinners. I'm sorry, you guys are the unrepentant sinners. And like people are like praying over them. And there's some kind of social pressure for these people on the anxious bench to repent and come forward, right? I know, it's kind of weird. We don't do it today, and you can probably understand why. Not a good idea. Don't, don't put that in your plan for the fellowship for the fall, please. I'll get angry phone calls from your staff.
1: I need a bench.
0: No anxious benches. But I'm not calling out any of those methods in particularly. But these methods, and I want to I apply this to our uh, situation in a moment. These methods, while not bad in themselves, the problem with them is this. They're designed to get an emotional response from people. You see, instead of putting God's word at the center, they, they put the method at the center because they think, they, not they think, they really know, that they, they figure out a way to, to manipulate your emotions and people's emotions so that they respond. Revivalism uses certain methods to produce an emotional response. And this is important because when we looked at Nehemiah, we saw that emotions aren't bad, right? right? It's okay to have a response to the word that's weeping over your sin. It's right to have a response to the word that's worship. You're allowed to raise your hands, right? That's what happens in Nehemiah. It's even right to have a celebration in Nehemiah um, chapter 8, verse 10. We would see that if we had kept reading. Although revivals affect people, though, deeply at the emotional level, revivals don't manipulate emotions. Revival doesn't aim at the emotions. Rather, the emotions are a byproduct of the uh, deeper understanding of the truth. The emotions are inflamed by the kindling or the fuel of God's word. And I want to say this particularly because aiming at emotions, uh, I don't just think is is bad, but it really is dangerous and manipulative. Why does this matter? Because revivalism is alive today. We have revivalism in America. The methods are different. There's no more anxious bench, praise the Lord. (laughs) But there are a variety of other methods today. And again, just to be clear, because this is recorded, I am not calling out any of these methods, all right? Don't come at me if your fellowship does an altar call or something. I'm not responsible for that or doesn't do it. I don't know. I don't care. Um, but it, but there are a variety of methods that are used by various churches and ministries today that are not primarily oriented around God's word but around getting you to have an emotional response. Some of those methods are, those, are services that encourage spontaneous baptisms, or these prolongated services that go on and on and on. There are stunts that happen in churches. Do you know that's happening more and more? Stunts all over the place. Celebrity preachers are everywhere. See, what's happening in these situations is the, the methods are trumping the message. The methods are more important than the message. See, and if we're gonna have a revival, we need to not have counterfeits. We need to have people in churches who are willing to stand up and say, what we really need to have at the center of this church is not these methods. It's not about the methods, it's about getting God's word rightly understood for people. That's one misunderstanding. Another one, I, I think I put reactionary conservatism. A better way to say that would have been re- reactionary skepticism. I'm not talking politically at all here. I've probably already gotten in enough trouble this morning, um, this afternoon. I'm not talking politically here. We're talking about a religious reactionaryism that reacts to, that sees the bad things in revivalism and, and kind of put, paints a broad brush over everything. See, these are the, the kind of people who are particularly quick to criticize any display of, an emo, of emotion. To, to, be, to give them some credit, they're probably concerned for the purity of Jesus' church and they really care about right doctrine. But they're, I think, so worried at times about any emotional response that they, they lean towards quenching the spirit. I think maybe just one practical way I, I saw this recently is after some of the things that happened in Asbury in February, there are some Christians on social media online. Man, online is a terrible place to be for revival. Revival's going to be hard with the internet community. But there are some people commenting about the things that were happening in Asbury like two days in from like across the country. I'm like, I don't know what I think about what's happening in Asbury yet, but you definitely don't know, Right you don't know what's happening from, you know, if you're in Montana, you don't know what's happening in Kentucky, right? It's been two days. So it's probably okay for you to take a chill pill Mm -hmm. and let what God's doing happen. And then if there are problems with it, feel free to critique it. But there is real danger in this unhealthy skepticism. And I do think that's quenching the spirit. So we've seen two counterfeits here to revival. I want to talk a little bit about the preconditions to revival. There's this famous scene in the Old Testament where the prophet Elijah goes to battle with the prophets of Baal. Do you guys know this scene? You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. So this is another moment where um, the nation is in about as low an ebb as you could possibly be. Imagine this. Israel was God's people made to worship God. And at this time in Israel, you weren't allowed to worship God, Yahweh. You had to worship Baal. So... When times are bad in Israel, they're combining two religions, like Baal worship and worshiping God. That's when things are bad. When things are really bad, like in Elijah's day, you can't even worship God at all. Does that make sense? So things are terrible, but Elijah offers a challenge to the prophets of Baal, and the challenge is simple. All right, let's both set up an altar and make a sacrifice. And whichever altar has fire come down, that, that faith system is the true one. So if the prophets of Baal have fire come down, Baal's true. And if, if Yahweh has fire, brings fire down, Yahweh is true. Well, you probably know how the story ends, right? <laughs> Elijah sets up the altar, makes the offering, and the fire comes down. And that's a, I think a helpful illustration for how to think about what I mean by these preconditions. Did God need Elijah to bring the fire down? Not really, but kind of, right? He didn't need Elijah, certainly, but he did use Elijah killing the animal and setting up the offering to be the, the place where he poured out his power. And I do think there's a few things that help us maybe understand the, the things that, that often are happening when you see a revival break out. And I have three of them for you here. There's probably more, but I, I think there's three at least. And the first one is this persistent, passionate prayer. Perhaps the most constant theme in the history of revival is the power of prayer. If revival is not happening because of programs, you could say it this way. Revival primarily happens in response to people's prayer. There's that Matthew Henry quote from the fancy handout. Can someone read that for me?
2: When God intends great mercy for his people... He sets them
0: a-praying. Oh, give us that one again. That's it's too good to just right. hear once.
2: Yeah, hold on. One more. When God intends great mercy for his people, he sets them a-praying.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. When God intends a great mercy for his people. Man, if God intends a great mercy for your fellowship next fall, what would it look like now? Prayer. Before God is about to move in a community, he starts people praying. Prayer reminds us of our utter weakness, our frailty, our inability. We can't change ourselves, let alone our campuses. We're limited, we're half-hearted, we're helpless. But in prayer, we come before the throne of grace and beg our loving, all-powerful Heavenly Father to help. Prayer reminds us that God is God and we are not. And it is a sad state, I think, for many of our churches and perhaps our fellowships as well, that so often the prayer meeting is the first thing people skip out on, right? That prayer can feel like the tacked on part of the meeting or the end of the Bible study or the end of the time, right? When, if a revival is going to happen, one of the things that happens is God sets his people to pray. So maybe we could get practical here. One practical way for us to develop this in our communities would be to pray for revival in your church and in your fellowship this summer, and maybe even throughout the fall, pray. Gather a couple of guys together or girls together or just get a bunch of people together and say, let's just pray for God to break out in revival. Maybe even you could, if you want to get crazy, at the beginning of the semester, spend a day or half a day fasting and praying for God to do something special on your campus. That's a few practicals. The first thing is persistent, passionate prayer. The second one is a right doctrine of conversion. You see, what happens in revivalism is that actually that some of the fundamental doctrines are changed. The same words are used, but doctrines actually change. Look at what Charles Finney wrote again here. Someone else with that handout. Give me that Finney quote.
5: Conversion consists in the right employment of the sinner's own agency.
0: Okay, so here's what he's saying. Conversion is totally in the hands of the individual person, the individual sinner. You see, he's to be clear here. It's not wrong for an individual sitting there to make a decision to follow Jesus. That's a good thing. And Christians should all agree with that. However, what Finney has done, which is distinct, is he's saying he's really pulled out the spiritual element totally. He said it's all about individual people's decision and God doesn't have anything to do with it. You see, genuine revival understands that conversion is a work of the Spirit of God to open up the ears and hearts of people to receive God's word. If we had more time, which we don't, we would look at John 3, where Jesus compares the converting work of the Spirit to the wind. You see, we see the effects of the wind all over the place. We see it blowing through the trees. But you and I don't control the wind, right? We have no power over it. Similarly, the the converting work of the Holy Spirit is not something we control or manipulate, but over time we see its effects on people. Maybe another way to say this is this that genuine conversion is measured best not by the amount or number of emotional responses although emotional responses aren't bad but by following the revival the true really revival leader george whitfield's rule that a holy life is the best evidence of a gracious state see true revival understands conversion as being a work of god to open up hearts and minds and wills so that people repent and believe And that actually leads to a tangible change in life. See, the problem with revivalism is it makes it really easy to be a Christian. And if you think about it, if you make it really easy to be a Christian, it doesn't really cost you anything. Then you get churches filled with people who don't really understand what it means to be a Christian. And that's one of the worst things for the church. So it has a right doctrine of conversion. It has passionate, uh, persistent prayer. It also has clarity between justification and sanctification. In revival, people have a clear understanding of the difference between these two important doctrines, a doctrine that is often confused in church today. I put that little, uh, what's it called, uh, table there on your handout, on the, on the special handout. I'm so sorry for the not special people.
1: <laughs>
0: I can draw it. I'll draw it up here afterwards if you want to get it. But it's a simple chart that... that I, I've used on campus before, I probably stole it from someone that illustrates the difference between justification and sanctification. Because I don't know if you know this, you maybe you do, maybe you don't. Most of the people on your campus who call themselves Christians don't know what it means to be a Christian, right? I was in a room with 90 football players at Albright and I asked them to talk, to, to share with me what they thought it meant to be a Christian. And almost all of them, except one guy who I was working with, praise God, said things like this, To be a Christian means, well, to do good things, to try to be a better person, or to, one guy said, to live out the image of God in you, which I'm like, that's interesting, but wrong. (laughs) I hadn't heard that before. Because almost all of their definitions, they were, they diverged a little bit, but they had this, this idea. To be a Christian means to believe in God and to try to do good things. Okay, I hope you've come to understand this week, or really before this week, Lord willing, at your fellowship, but maybe even today, that that is not what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to understand that Jesus took your place on the cross and died for your sins. That your debt with God because of your sin has been wiped out, and in its place you have the credit that Jesus earned for you in his perfect life. That's justification, and we've got to understand that. That's why I put justification. It's a legal status. You are not guilty because of what Christ has done. Do you accomplish justification? No. No, Dante, you've seen this before. You should be able to help me out. This is God and Christ. (laughs) And particularly, we should talk about this. What aspect of sin does it deal with? It deals with the penalty of sin. If you're a Christian, you are no longer under the penalty of sin. You won't stand before God and have to... uh, Basically, like make up for all of the, your failures and shortcomings, because they've all been paid for. You can say before God, God, you, you paid my debt in, through Christ, and I am not guilty. The penalty has been paid. So we got to understand justification. But I find this, too, that there are people who understand, at least on a basic level, of justification, but they miss sanctification, right? Do you know people who say things like, I, I know Jesus died for me, but I kind of live however I want, Right? that's a very common thing amongst christians today and that's a failure to understand sanctification which is uh, an ongoing process of becoming more like jesus and that's a work we have to do we strive and we work hard at it but it's not only something we do it's something the holy spirit is working in us and sanctification deals with the power of sin do you know that jesus didn't just pay the penalty for your sin but he also beat the power of your sin if you don't know this man, spend some time in Romans chapter six. Uh, I put one quote for you on, on that special handout. Romans six: For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. You see, Jesus has beaten the power of your sin. That doesn't mean the presence of your sin still doesn't isn't a problem. You still have the presence of sin. You struggle with sin. You still have issues if you're a Christian but the power of sin has been broken. You're no longer a slave to it anymore, but you're free. A a, a few practicals here. If you are totally new to justification and sanctification and those ideas, please talk to me or talk to your staff or talk to someone in your fellowship about this. It's crucial that we understand this. Another thing that's crucial is that we, as leaders for many of us in churches and in our fellowships, is that we rightly share the gospel with people. You see, understanding justification and sanctification helps us avoid two errors. Understanding justification helps us avoid moralism, which is be a better person, right? And understanding sanctification helps us us avoid a false doctrine of shallow grace. Jesus died for you and you can live however you want. So don't teach moralism, don't teach a shallow, weak grace, but teach the powerful, powerful, world-changing grace that Jesus died for your sins, paid the penalty for him, it's gone, and is now at work to change you and make you more like himself. Those are some of the preconditions for revival. I want to talk now about the effects of revival. What would it look like, man, if revival came to our churches and our campuses? I got four things here. Four things. First, there would be a renewed love for worship. There would be changed habits. That's the second thing, changed habits. The third thing is there would be a move from passivity to activity. And fourthly, there would be a, a concern for society. You could say it this way, a social concern. The first one is this, a renewed love for worship. Jonathan Edwards, who saw a revival in this town, his little town in Northampton, Massachusetts, saw 300 people converted in the span of just a couple of years. Can you imagine that? Here's how he describes it. He says this, Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on public worship. Every hearer's eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached. Notice, emotions. Some weeping with sorrows and distresses. Others with joy and love. Others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. Man. Our public assemblies were beautiful. Man, one of the tragedies today is that we have seen a decline in the, in, in the number and the attendance of public church services. Do you know that? The average Christian doesn't even attend church once a week. Back in this, that day, the average Christian attended church three times a week. Now it's like every other week is the average church attender. Fewer churches even hold Sunday evening services or, or midweek services. What happens in a revival then is that it leads to people saying, I just want to be in church. I want to hear from God's word and be with God's people. Think of the description of the early church in Acts, right? Where they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. That's the word. The breaking of bread. That's the Lord's supper and prayer. Man, when revival comes again, it will result in a renewed love for worship This won't be easy in our distracted age with our phones and social media and all these other things we have to distract us today and Netflix. But man, when revival comes, and let's pray that it comes, there will will be a renewed love for worship. It will also result in a change in habits. A change in habits. In 1743, way back when, a revival broke out in Rentham, Massachusetts, And two ordinary pastors, Henry Messenger and Elias Haven, wrote about it. Remember, this is the time when people walked to church and they were in church all day. In the middle of the day, people would do all kinds of things, play games, hang out. Here's what they say. They say, before the revival, people would do this. They would spend their time in little else but vain and worldly talk among most. But upon the late remarkable divine influence on people's minds, there was a wonderful change in this regard. We think the great part of our people. It became a common thing for them to retire in small companies to different places for religious conferences or readings, and sometimes these exercises were mixed. That's male and female. And more lately, there are several societies that spend part of the intermission, as well as time of public exercises, on God's worship. God's worship is very remarkably holy to the Lord, esteemed, honorable, and a great delight to the more serious among us. And even the time of travel to and from our public worship has been sweetly redeemed for pious discourse between two or three as they walk together. So catch what's going on here. When a revival breaks out in this town, it's not just like they have great church services But it's interesting that things change around the services. In the time between the services, before and after people, ordinary everyday people are occupied with spiritual conversations. Man, this is, I was in the discipleship track. So this is a shout out to our discipleship track. But man, having spiritual conversations with people, even this week with your people in your fellowship maybe in your campus group time or in your free time. This is part of what happens when revival breaks out is people can't stop talking about what they're learning from God's word or how God's encouraging them or, or even their struggles and challenges. Another uh, effect of revival is this, that ordinary Christians move from passivity to activity. One church historian notes that for mo- most of ordinary church life, most people act in their churches as if the pastor is the primary person responsible for the spiritual activity of the church. Many churches don't ask people to do very much, right? Just show up and we're glad you're here. I mean, certainly, hopefully you show up to church and fellowship and we're glad you're here. But what happens in a revival is that the people of God are mobilized from passivity to activity. This means that they share their faith in their community. They initiate new ministry projects. They serve and they're committed to the work of the church is this great quote. I love this quote from a church historian, Eusto Gonzalez. He's writing about the early church. You ever wonder this? The church grew a lot in the first hundred years. How the heck did it happen, right? They didn't have any Billy Graham. They didn't have any, you know, fancy speakers that we know of. They didn't have special events. What did they do? Well, here's what this historian says, again, in the special handout. The enormous numerical growth of the church in the first centuries is undeniable, It's a historical fact. This leads us to the question of what methods is used to achieve such growth. The answer may surprise some modern Christians, for the ancient church knew nothing of evangelistic services or revivals, meaning revival services. On the contrary, in the early church, only baptized Christians were admitted. So imagine that, if you're not a Christian, you can't even go to church. That's the way it was. I'm not saying it's good. It's just the way it was. <laughs> Therefore, evangelism did not take place in church services, but rather as Celsus. Celsus was a prominent Roman citizen who was a critic of Christianity. So he's criticizing Christianity, and here's how he described how the church is growing. He says, it happened in kitchens, shops, and markets.
1: Well.
0: A few famous teachers, these are some of the famous early Christians, Justin and origin, they held debates in their schools, and they won some converts among the, the intelligentsia, the intellectuals. But the fact remains that most converts were made by anonymous Christians who whose witness led others to their faith. Wow. And that's an encouragement to me, because I don't know anything about you. I'm not, the, I'm not the Billy Graham, and I don't know any Billy Grahams. I don't know any people of amazing abilities who are going to change the world by their speaking. But I do know a lot of ordinary Christians and God seems to have a particular uh, program of bringing about revival through moving ordinary Christians from passivity to activity. Our last one is this social concern. Do you guys know what the YMCA is? Do you really know what the YMCA is though? We're going to find out here in a minute. What do you think of when you think of the YMCA? Bronze. Okay, the dance. I didn't think of that, but yes, this is the dance. What else? Run, like four on four with the old heads. Four on four with the old heads. Okay. That's what you said, right? Okay, sorry. What else? What? Is YMCA. You guys have YMCA in your town? A pool, a gym for old people. That's what my definition of the. Sorry, is that it? again? Why am I recording this? I don't know. <laughs> Kayla, so please edit that line out. All right, so that's what we think of. <laughs> that's what we think of when we think of the YMCA. That's not why it was founded. Do You know what it stands for? Young Men's
1: Christian Association. Association.
0: Okay, we're kind of off on the timing of that one, but y'all got it. Young Men's Christian Association. It was founded by a guy who was impacted by revival. His name was George Williams. He was impacted by a revival in England in the 1800s. And what happened for George Williams is he was so impacted by the gospel that he looked around and saw, particularly in um, Britain, that the cities were dilapidated right, mm-hmm. because the Industrial Revolution had come. And that led to some good things, don't get me wrong, but it also led to uh, an immense uh, increased poverty amongst particularly children. And children weren't well fed and weren't well taken care of. (laughs) And so he said, you know what? Let's do something for the poor children in our cities, particularly the poor uh, boys. And so they um, had these gyms, what we think of as gyms, for Bible study and for fellowship and for training in self-defense and life skills. So he created the YMCA to do good physically and spiritually to his community. You see, Christians renewed by the Spirit of God want to see their societies transformed. Right? Revival does not only lead to a spiritual change in the lives of people. It certainly does. But it also, those spiritual changes in hearts and minds actually changeably makes a difference in communities. So I think maybe this is a question for you to talk about with some of the people from your fellowship. What would it look like on your campus for the impact of God's Word on the fellowship to, to overflow to the campus itself? I don't know what that would look like for you guys. Maybe new alternative communities to have social connection in a world that's divided, especially apart from drugs and alcohol. Maybe regular community service that goes out outside of the walls of your campus to serve the surrounding community. I don't know. I don't have all the answers for that. But if a revival is going to happen, man, it's going to be because one of the things we're going to see is that as it happens, people change the communities around them. All right, let's stop there. We've gone 45 minutes, but I'll just take two or three minutes. Do you have any questions about anything we've said so far? I want to spend a, just a moment or two in prayer. But any questions, comments, violent disagreement?
1: Mm. <laughs> what are you
0: doing, Josh.
2: So as a result of something like the Asbury revival in February, we saw many people, especially on college campuses, of course, yeah. Uh, baby, somehow- um, how do you find the the, the the line between trusting the word and not the methods while also like setting up those prayer meetings by faith hoping that a revival might happen? Like is there yeah. no sort of planning at all? That's a
0: great point, Josh. Yeah. When we, say the, when we say that methods, and overemphasis on methods is a problem, we don't want to go so far to say, don't do any methods and just hang out and just chill and God will bring a revival. That's not what I'm saying. It's
1: like,
0: uh, I'm particularly focused on methods that want to manipulate emotions. So be careful of methods that want to manipulate emotions. Normal structures in your fellowship are good. It's good to have a regular meeting, right? where the gospel is preached. It's good to have a prayer meeting that's regular or or some kind of regular prayer time, maybe that's on your leadership team or something. That's really important. Meetings are good, but methods that are designed to evoke emotion are dangerous. Let's spend a moment praying for revival then, um, on our campuses. P- what campuses are represented here? Can we just shout it out?
6: Like a- <laughs> Little yeah. Wow.
0: You know what? I'm going to make you pray because I can't write that fast. All right, everyone who just shouted. Pray, ki- pray quick. Can we pray like, do you have a hand up? Oh, real quick.
4: I just wanted to ask if you had any like resources from like pastors or church sure. stories in the past about a historic revival that I
0: could read. Yeah, a great one would be Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray. If you want to go real deep, anything by Jonathan Edwards is really good. Um, He's got some works on revival that are really helpful. Um, And then Richard Lovelace, um, Dynamics of Spiritual Life is good, too. That's more. All right, we're going to pray. And I want every if you're from a campus that's not prayed for, then that's your fault, because you better pray. Again, I'm recording this. I'm going to get fired. All right. We're going to pray, and just pray. I know it's awkward to pray for maybe some of you in front of this many people, but pray for God to do something on your campus. And we have a lot of people, so and we're you know somewhat over time. Not really, but a little bit. So pray quickly, briefly, um, for each campus. Someone, Dante's going to start us for Albright.
6: Oh, <laughs> and then we'll... Let's
0: pray. Go ahead, Dante.
6: Uh, thank you for allowing us um, all to gather here to, to listen to Lincoln and just reflect on the um, concept of, of revival and just allowing you to move. I pray over Albright right now that uh, during the fall and continuing on that you just allow it to, to break out by just allowing all of us, starting up top, uh, the leadership, but just the, the body of Christ on campus, just constantly doing the, the small things, constantly praying, constantly getting in the word, being consistent, um, just fellowshipping with one another, uh and just delighting in you to allow that to to really change our hearts, constantly walk in that sanctification process and just out of us living for you, you're able to produce revival. That we don't try to do too much on our own. Yeah, uh, you just have it break out. Father God, I pray for Lebanon Valley College, Lord,
4: I just pray that you would uh, be preparing the hearts of students for this coming semester, that they would be eager to, to find something that's missing or that they would just see that the things that they're chasing after in this world are not satisfying. And I just pray that you would equip uh, the Lebanon Valley college student leaders to faithfully minister the gospel to them as we're learning to do so through the second Timothy and Lord, that we would entrust you to do work of conversion that there's nothing that we can say or do apart from just faithfully, um, ministering the word, that we would not be uh, swayed to, to any deceitful methods, but uh, I just trust that your message is um, proven to to accomplish your, your grand purposes, Lord. Lord, I just pray for, like, in college, you know that we're trying to get a group started, and we're currently in a bow, but just pray that once it does get officially establish that you will use us to move around the whole campus and just pray that the leadership
1: team stays focused on you and stays true to your word and helps us lead the way for the rest of the campus lord i
6: thank you that you
3: use ordinary people and ordinary means to um, spread your word I pray that you would send revival to Lafayette College um, and that you would use us despite our weaknesses and even busyness with school, um, different things like that. But I pray that you would work in the people there um, and draw all the different types of people on the campus to you, Lord, um, and give them true life that lasts. God, I lift up Cudstown's campus to you. God, we ask you for revival. There's so many students that walk by us that are so lost in their way and have no idea who you are and the light that you can bring to their life. God, energize us to move in the ordinary ways um, and to allow us to keep pushing on and to create an atmosphere um, in which you can move um, and bring revival and bring healing to the students on campus that that need it more than they know right now. And we just lift um, left the fellowship and all of the unbelievers up to you now in um, a request for a
4: rock bottle. Heavenly Father, at Elizabethtown, we stand like Ezekiel in a valley of dry bones. Hmm. You alone, O oh Lord, know if these dry bones can live. And I pray that your spirit we poured out on this campus <coughs> as my friends and I at Elizabethtown see so many lost sinners, destined uh, on a path to hell, and my heart breaks for them, Lord. I pray for your spirit. I pray that as the early church devoted themselves (laughs) to the the ministry of the word and prayer, and you blessed them and brought thousands of souls to Christ, I pray that you would bless the ordinary means of grace that uh, we strive to be faithful to at E-Town, and that you would bring as many people as you uh, would be pleased to, to Christ. Father, I pray that you would guard our hearts from any temptation to use our own human wisdom or cunning, manipulative schemes to try to gain an artificial revival. Father, I pray that you would rather encourage us in prayer and encourage us in being faithful through Bible study, mm-hmm. fellowship, discipleship, uh, and preaching the gospel. Father, guard our hearts and bring your spirit us. Dear God, I just pray for um, the cancer of DeSales
3: Um, we're just in a time of transition um, with a lot of leadership change and I just pray that um, rather than allowing this um, just to lead us down um, a bad path, I pray that you will just allow this opportunity to just renew um, the passion for your word and the gospel. Mm -hmm. I pray that you will just strengthen um, the hearts of the members of the fellowship and just allow them to really have um, just a heart for um, reaching the rest of the campus. I pray that their priority would be on you and just encouraging others and themselves by just attending Bible study and just fellowshipping with others. So easy to get lost in the rigor of um, the different programs and majors, but I pray that you would just continually remind them of what is ultimately most important, and just bring them to their knees in prayer and humility for um, for the campus and what you are going to do through them. Lord, I pray over Cedar um, I thank you for this, our Bible speaker on campus, Lord, you have made your presence you known um, to the women there. Um, Lord, I pray that you would allow the um, the members of Makers to generate curiosity on campus with the way that they live their lives, um, would you highlight, Lord, the way that you are present to us daily and the way that we need you in so many ways, Lord, to um, the people of that school? I pray in particular, Lord, that you would change opinion towards Christians on that hmm. campus um, and you would give the students is a part in the renewed mind um, that is open to your word and your grace, um, and to lay aside. God, I lift up Susquehanna. Um, as Paul is passing the torch to Timothy in Second Timothy, the torch is being passed to our leaders at Susquehanna. Uh, God, I pray that. Um, you will make that we will be making the gospel ministry a priority this year um, and beyond that pray that through you um, you will do a mighty work on this campus um, pray that uh, we will continue to trust you and that our names will not be glorified and our campus fellowship will not be hmm. glorified. but above all you and your gospel will be glorified right. on our campus god God, I pray for Bloomsburg University's campus. Um, pray that they will also have a revival there, um, and that your will is glorified through that. Um, there's just so many unbelievers on campus and it just breaks my heart knowing um, what will happen on judgment day. So mm. just pray that we would be a light to you, God, to those unbelievers, and that your will and glory will be seen to all of them.
6: Lord, I pray to you that you are God who moves the hearts of sinners, Lord, um, to draw us to repentance. Lord, You've done that for each of us in this room, I pray that you would do that for uh, the many people who don't know you, Lord, at Millbury. I pray that you would this coming
1: semester, Lord, just soften hearts, open eyes, Lord, to the truth of the gospel, and that we would not focus on any methods, Lord God, except the faithful teaching of your
6: Word, and prayer, and worship. God that seeks to glorify you first and foremost, Lord. Would you just work mightily and use that to draw people who are far off from you to yourself, to your business?
5: Dear God, I lift up Bucknell University um, as we move into this fall semester, God, and moving forward. God. I just pray that the um, community on campus would be more open to um, just Christianity yeah. and more accepting of Christian values, God, as we go out. Uh, I just pray that you would embolden us to live like Christ in their daily lives um, and just give us the courage um, and strength to share more readily with our peers God that they would be able to see a difference um, in the way that we
1: live and the way we speak um, I just pray for um, just continued
5: encouragement in our leadership at DCF luck um, Bucknell um, that we would um, be emboldened with the power of your word God and as we share it that it would be the effect of your word God that is changing people's hearts I just pray um, for a revival and I just pray that um, this summer as we prepare to go into this fall semester that we would um, really appreciate the power of prayer um, and use, use it as a tool God to prepare
0: Heavenly Father God as we look back we remember the mighty things that you have done the way you have convicted people of your sin, you've restored the lost sheep to your fold. You've given the, your church a sense of the nearness of your word and empowered your people to speak powerfully as your witnesses. As we look back, we remember these things and remember that you're the father of every, who gives every good gift. We also look out, Father, and we remember, We see so much brokenness on our campus. Campuses. God, campuses that have turned from your word, many campuses that were founded by Christians, for Christians, have turned to stand against everything that that Christianity stands for. God, I pray for you to deepen our compassion for these campuses, and I pray for you to bring about an awakening by the power of your Holy Spirit on them. Would you use our fellowships at these campuses to to bring the light and the hope of the gospel in a powerful way? God, we don't pray for big numbers for the sake of our fellowships. We don't pray for us to be the most influential club for the sake of having influence, but God, we pray for lost souls to turn their lives around. We pray for people trapped in darkness and sin to find hope and grace. We pray for people who are proud and self-righteous to find humility and life in humility, Christ-like humility. God, we lament in ourselves the apathy and the lack of prayerfulness that's often been in our hearts and in our fellowships. Cleanse us, Lord, that we might be worthy instruments for your service by the power of your spirit. And we pray you would pour out your spirit in a special way and bring about revival across these campuses at DeSales and Alvernia and Wilkes and Lycoming and Cedarcrest and Lafayette and Kutztown and Muhlenberg and Bloom and Bucknell and E-Town and Susquehanna and Albright and LVC and many other campuses that aren't in this room. God, would you do a mighty thing for the glory of Jesus Christ? And would we get to just be faithful in your service in these things? Thank you for each one here. God, I pray for you to encourage and strengthen them by the power of your spirit to be faithful in your ordinary means. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.